Aim Shikaho Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Shri Advaita Gadadha Shri Vasari Gaur Bhaktivinda Ki Jai Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gogopina Shaimakunda Radha Kunda Giri Govardhana Ki Jai Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai Madhur Dhamma Ki Jai Navadrit Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai Ganga Maya Jamuna Devi Ki Jai Bhakti Devi Ki Jai Tosi Maharani Ki Jai Samaveta Bhaktarindaki Jai Gaur Premanandi. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Gauranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Nama Om Vishnu Padaya Krishna Prasthaya Bhutale Srimate Bhakti Vedanta Swami Nityami Namaste Sarasvati Deve Gauravani Pacharane Nirvasesa Sunyavadi Paskachade Satarane Vandeham Sri Guru Sri Uttapadakamalam Sri Gurun Vaishnavamscha Sri Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raghunatham Vitam Sam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Padijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Sri Radha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Sri Vishakam Vitamscha Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya June 26, 2012, Skype class from Hilo, Hawaii. Reading from Srimad Bhagavatam 118. Maharaj Parikit Cursed by a Brahmin Boy, text 20. Etavatalam Nanusitena. Gunara samyan atisayanasa Hitvetaran partanayatovib Hitetaran partayatovibutir Yasangri Renum Jusatena Piso Etevata So far Alum Unnecessary Nanu, if at all, Suitena, Suchitena, 
by description gunai by attributes asamya immeasurable anati shayanasya of one who is unexcelled hitva leaving aside itaran others Pratyataha of those who ask for Vibhutihi favor of the goddess of fortune Yasya one whose Angry feet, rainum dust, jushite serves anabipsaho. of one who is unwilling translation it is now ascertained that he the personality of godhead is unlimited and there is none equal to him consequently no one can speak of him adequately great demigods cannot obtain the favor of the goddess of fortune even by prayers but this very goddess renders service unto the lord although he is unwilling to have such service so here the sages are saying Krishna is unlimited is no one equal to him and then they give a specific example that the goddess of fortune is serving him and specifically they're saying Angri Renam she's serving the dust of his feet even though no one else can get her favor and it's interesting in the sense that Vibhutihi opulences means a person there's a person of opulences. A Prabhupada purport. The personality of Godhead or the Parameshwara Parabrahman, according to the Shrutis, has nothing to do. He has no equal, nor does anyone excel him. He has unlimited potencies, and his every action is carried out systematically in his natural and perfect ways. Thus, the Supreme Personality of Godhead is full in himself and he has nothing to accept from anyone else, including the great demigods like Brahma. Others ask for the favor of the goddess of fortune, and despite such prayers, she declines to award such favors, but still she renders service unto the supreme personality of Godhead, although he has nothing to accept from her. The personality of Godhead in his Garbhadakashai Vishnu feature begets Brahma, the first created person in the material world, from his navel lotus stem and not in the womb of the goddess of fortune who is eternally engaged in his service. These are some of the instances of his complete independence and perfection. That he has nothing to do does not mean that he is impersonal. 
He is transcendentally so full of inconceivable potencies that simply by his willing, everything is done without physical or personal endeavor. He is called, therefore, Yogeshwar, or the Lord of all mystic powers. Eta vatalam nanu shuchitena gunair asam yam atisam manasya hitveteran pratanyato vibhutir yasangrivenum jushite nabitsaho. It is now ascertained that he, the personality of Godhead, is unlimited and there is none equal to him. Consequently, no one can speak of him adequately. Great demigods cannot obtain the favor of the goddess of fortune, even by prayers. But this very goddess renders service unto the Lord, although he is unwilling to have such service. So, many people talk in general about God, that he's great, and it's not unique to the Vedic scriptures to say things like, he is unlimited, and there is no one equal to him. In fact, that's the general definition of God. Uh, he, other than whom one cannot find anyone greater, the greatest being. But then when it comes to details of how he's great, uh, generally the scriptures of the world give only a very vague and sketchy information. And here we're getting this specific picture of angry renum. Renum means dust. Angry means defeat. Yes, yeah, angry renum. He has feet, and his feet have dust on the bottom of them. Uh, that generally the case. Right? That even if we're wearing shoes even if we're wearing socks and shoes, still the bottoms of our feet get some dust. So that means that God is a person and he must walk. Like when the demigods come to the earth, they, their feet don't touch the ground. They're not really in this time-space of this planet. They remain in the time-space of their own planet. But Krishna, when he comes, he walks on the ground and his feet get dusty. Of course, in Vrindavan, he's walking on the ground without shoes. There's that story, I'm pretty sure it's in the Govinda Lilamrita, where Mother Yasoda asked Krishna, aren't you going to wear shoes and have an umbrella when you take care of the cows? And Krishna says, unless my cows also have shoes and umbrellas, then how can I have any? I have to give them as nice facility as I have. Of course, said the in Dwarka and Mathura, Krishna is wearing shoes. So here we see that although he's unlimited, although he's perfect, although there's none equal to him, and although he has, in one sense, no desires to fulfill, uh, still he has feet that become dusty. Still he's a person. He has a form. Therefore, everything we desire can be found in Krishna. Because we desire not only perfection and freedom, 
but we also desire personal relationships. We don't want to just be floating in some sort of perfection. And generally at the present time, especially, perhaps, we think that perfection must entail negation of personality. We tend to think this even in our own attempts to become perfect. And Jesus said we should become perfect just like our Father in Heaven is perfect. And Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that if we know the truth about Him and His perfection and detachment, then we also attain to the same state. Indeed, although we are never the greatest, still we have also some independence a liberated soul. Liberated means free. We also have some swarat. We also have uh, powers, not unlimited potencies, but we also have great spiritual potencies, and yet we're a person. But particularly this, this freedom. Now we're afraid that if someone has this freedom, then they will stop being a person. So let's see how Krishna has both freedom and is a person. So the specific example here of freedom given is that he doesn't care to ask the favor of the goddess of fortune. So again, the word here indicating the goddess of fortune is vibhutihi. Vibhutihi means powers, opulence. So we condition souls, generally speaking, We are spending our effort only and solely to get this favor of the goddess of fortune. In fact, you can say that that is the root cause of our conditioned life, the the bottom of it. That we want to be the Lord and we want to be the controller of the goddess of fortune. We want to be the enjoyer. Of course, as soon as you try to be the enjoyer of Lakshmi, she turns into Durga, just as what happened to Ravana, that when he went to kidnap Sita, all he got was her shadow. And rather than getting opulences, his opulences were destroyed. You can't steal the wealth of God. You can't steal the wife or the consort of God. But that is our main business We are spending our time and our energy uh, trying to obtain or keep beauty, to obtain or keep strength, knowledge, wealth, good reputation, having people think well of us, and also detachment. And that's all we do. I mean, if you really analyze the activities of a conditioned soul, You can simply categorize them like that. That we're all seeking to acquire and to keep the six opulences and generally more than others. We want to have more than others so we become powerful. We would like to be like this, right? Where whatever we want is immediately accomplished. And yet Krishna, he doesn't do that. He's not begging for opulences. He's not begging 
for Lakshmi Devi. Lakshmi Devi, please come. But she comes anyway. And she comes in a very menial position. Although she's his queen, she comes in a, in a very menial way to serve the dust of his feet. And he doesn't require her. As Prabhupada gives the example, he doesn't require her to have children. He can beget Brahma without her. So he certainly accepts her service and he has great affection and love for her, what to speak of, in her ultimate form as Sri Ranti Radharani. And you can say Krishna is begging for the favor of Radharani, but of course that is in rasa. That is not in tattva. So that is Krishna's position. And really, that is our ultimate position also. Srila Prabhupada explains that we living entities, we also have in small quantity, eternally, these six opulences in quantity equal to our own status. We can also become Atmarama and Aptakama. We can also become free. In fact, that's our original position, to become free. But we generally think that someone who's free must not be interested in or engage in any kind of personal relationships. So therefore, people have this idea of God. If he's free and independent and he can get everything he wants independently of anybody else, like here having Brahma without Lakshmi, that therefore he would not care that we tend to equate freedom and detachment and self-sufficiency, self-completeness with a lack of caring, with a lack of love, with a lack of relationships. Because in this world, our caring and our relationships is very much connected to a feeling of insufficiency. The reason that we work, like Prabhupada says here, he has nothing to do. So why do we have something to do? In this world we have something to do because we're feeling that we lack something. We're feeling an illusion of incompleteness. A man marries because he feels if I don't have a wife, how can I get my desires fulfilled? People marry, they have children, they get a home, they get a job because they're thinking these things will give me what I want. And without them, what will I do? And therefore we conclude that if someone has nothing to do, if they have all of their desires fulfilled internally, then they won't, make, they won't do any actions and they won't have any relationships. Just like Srila Prabhupada gives that wonderful purport in the Bhagavad Gita in reference to attachment, fear and anger, that the conditioned souls, again, perhaps particularly at the present time, are especially afraid of personality, We're thinking, well, if I have personality, then I'll be attached and I'll suffer. And conversely, we think, if I become spiritually emancipated, then I won't care. If we examine what is holding us back from full surrender to Krishna, for those of us who haven't fully surrendered to Krishna, we'll see that it's some sort of fear, and often it's a fear that I won't care anymore. If I was actually Krishna conscious, if I was actually detached, 
I wouldn't have any concern anymore about relationships with other living entities. That I would be cold. That I would be impersonal. But we see that Krishna, he doesn't need anything. He's, he's not interested in having the services of the goddess of fortune in terms of his own needs. He doesn't require her services. But yet he accepts them. And he's warm and kind. And Krishna says he's the heat and fire. He's the origin of all warmth. He's caring. He's actually a person. And a person who even has dust on his feet. In fact, Krishna is so caring that he's canvassing the conditioned souls to return to him. And he gives everybody whatever they want. I mean, we in this material world may not think we're getting whatever we want, but actually we are. We're getting exactly what we want. We're getting exactly what we ordered. We're just, we're foolish about what we ordered, that's all. We placed an order foolishly. But Krishna is so kind that he gives us whatever we want and he's willing to give even himself. In fact, he's begging. Just like Lord Nityananda, he's, it's explained that he's begging. He's knocking on people's doors. Please purchase me, purchase me. Oh, he's, he's saying, come, you can live in a perfect world. So, so much giving, so much caring, so much loving relationships although free although there's no need on his part there's no insufficiency there's no lack so Krishna's detachment is not coldness it's not uncaringness it's not impersonal so Prabhupada explains that the conditioned souls go back and forth between something called boga and tiaga We try to enjoy the world, and when we're frustrated, we become renounced. Then we're not happy with our renunciation because we're not feeling satisfied. Then again, we try to enjoy, and then again, we renounce, and then again, we try to enjoy. And many times, uh, devotees will think, people in general will think, when they're in their Tiaga stage, oh, this is renunciation. Uh, But that's not renunciation. Renunciation isn't hardening your heart. Real renunciation is, I don't need anybody or anything because I have Krishna, I'm connected with Krishna. And I engage in relationships with others to please Krishna out of love. Real love is something that doesn't have any necessity driving it. So when one's free from necessity, only then can one have real love. Rather than, if we're free from necessity, then we'll become cold and impersonal. Again, in this world, all of my so-called love is actually being driven by necessity. And I can't imagine what is love without some necessity driving it. I think if I felt fully satisfied, well, maybe I wouldn't maintain my family anymore. Maybe I wouldn't serve my husband anymore. I just wouldn't care. 
So we hold on to our attachments. Sometimes the reason we're holding on to our attachments is because we're thinking, well, my attachments motivate me to care. But that's not real caring. That's caring for the wrong reason. It's caring because I'm thinking, what am I going to get out of it? And we all know when that's, a, when that's on a very gross level how disgusting it is. If someone comes with an offer of, of service and an offer of affection because you know they're hoping to steal our money, it's revolting. But to some extent, in some way, on some platform, all material relationships are exactly like that. I'm coming forward with some uh, seeming offer of affection. Like here it says that everyone is worshipping the goddess of fortune. They're asking her. Pratana, they're asking. But they're not asking the favor of the goddess of fortune because they love her. They're asking the favor of the goddess of fortune because they want to get something from her. They're worshipping her to take. And if they could take without worshipping, they would do so. So because that's what we're accustomed to for billions of lifetimes, it's very hard for us to understand what is real love and what is real personal relationships. That real love and real personal relationships are not motivated by anything selfish. Now we have that as an ideal, as a concept, even materially. But we don't really understand it. And the only way to be on that platform is to be connected with Krishna. There's just no other way. You can't do it artificially. You can't just say, well, I'm going to serve my wife, my husband, and I'm not going to care whether they reciprocate with me or not, and I'm going to go on serving. You just can't maintain it. After a while, you'll say, well, wait a minute, you know. It's like you can't just work at a job and say, I don't care whether or not I get paid if you have mortgages to pay. You know, if you have if you have a need for money, you can't keep working without getting money. It's not possible. The only time you can work without getting paid is if you already have enough money on your own. I mean, it's quite I this is sort of a side note, but I I really find it interesting when I was working on the children's books, I was uh, collecting donations to pay the artists and and one sannyasi, a very wonderful person, said to me, why do you have to pay the artists? Why can't they work for free? And I said, well, each book takes somewhere between two to four weeks of full-time work to complete. You know, full-time eight to ten hours a day of, of work to finish. And if someone's doing a book, that means, say, for a month, they can't be earning any other money. I said, so who is in a position to do that? You know, somebody who is independently wealthy somehow, a woman whose husband is maintaining her. I said, maybe a a devotee living in an ashram. But we tried to have, there was one uh, woman living in an ashram who wanted to illustrate a book, and the town president even agreed. And after a year, she'd never found the time to get more than one picture done. So uh, actually someone just wrote a letter to back to Godhead in India, which I've been asked to reply to that saying, you know, you're quoting Srila Prabhupada that education should be free. So why do you charge tuition in your schools? And I've started to draft my reply that Prabhupada also says that the Ksatriyas should support the schools through tax money. 
and that the students in the schools go around to the villagers and collect donations. So the local village supports the school and the government supports the school. And because of that, therefore, free education can be offered, just like government schools in a place like America, where the citizens are paying for the schools through their taxes, so the citizens don't have to pay some sort of tuition. He said, if you expect the teachers to teach for free and nobody's giving them donations, how, how are they supposed to do that? Then they have to have a separate job. And then how are they going to give their attention to teaching? So, you know, sometimes we have this concept that uh, devotees should all work for free and it's only pure devotional service if you work for free. But in order to so-called work for free, you have to be maintained somehow. So it's exactly like that. In order for us to work for free, in order for us to give to everybody without needing or expecting or wanting, without it being contingent on getting something in return, we have to have some other means of support. I can't just say, well, I'm going to give in my human relationships without expecting anything in return, without needing anything in return. If I don't have someone else supporting me, I can't do it. So that's another reason why we, we feel that, you know, it's not possible to be have both personal relationships, to be a person, and to be independent and detached. So how, do, how does Krishna do it? Because he's unlimitedly supplying his own needs. He has his own source in himself. Therefore, he can just give unlimitedly without asking anything in return. And we, the jivas, when we connect with Krishna, just like when the teachers are connected with the government and the government is paying the teachers, then the teachers can teach for free without anxiety. Just like we have our schools in London and in Australia and New Zealand where the government is paying our, our teachers. So therefore they can teach without anxiety. They don't, have, they don't have to ask the devotee community to pay for the education. So when we're connected with the real government, with the Maha government of Krishna, when he's the one paying our salary in terms of all of our physical and emotional needs, then I also can be a person and have personal loving relationships and be free. Then I can actually give without it being contingent on what other people are giving me. So it's just uh, reading in the Nectar Devotion today where Srila Prabhupada was talking about this, one of the many places, where he says that whatever duties, he actually was quoting Krishna speaking to Uddhava in the 11th canto, and he's saying whatever duties we perform, whether they're the duties given in the scriptures or whether they're just our ordinary duties, if one does that to please the Supreme, then it's perfect. So the key for us is we have to know who we're working for. I have to work for the right master. Prabhupada says the difference between materialistic consciousness and spiritual consciousness is very slight. You just change who you're connecting with, who you're working for. Get yoga, get connection with the source. You know, feed the stomach instead of feeding the nose. Water the root instead of watering the leaf. 
doesn't mean you don't care about your nose or you don't care about your leaf, but it means you actually are able to care about your nose and care about your leaf. So connecting with Krishna means that then we become really, truly personal and loving. And without a connection with Krishna, it's not possible. We can fake it for a while, but eventually we won't be able to maintain it. Now, of course, there's degrees. It's not black and white. The more we're connected with Krishna, the more that we're able to have freedom in our relationships and genuine loving relationships and genuine personal relationships with everyone. And the less we're connected with Krishna, the less we can do it. Therefore, there's goodness, passion, ignorance. So even though goodness is still material and it's still selfish, it's much, much more connected with Krishna than someone in the mode of passion, which is much more connected with Krishna than someone in the mode of ignorance. So someone in the mode of ignorance doesn't get any kind of of happiness in the real sense of the term. They may get something that they call happiness. Uh, Someone in the mode of passion gets a little bit of happiness in the beginning. And someone in the mode of goodness is actually having some, some genuine happiness and some genuine illumination. So it's not that, okay, I'm just going to be suffering and have terrible relationships and be miserable and the whole material world is miserable and when I become a pure devotee, poof, then I'm going to be happy. No, it should be a, a gradual dawning of actual happiness like the sun rising in the morning it's not that it's pitch black and then boom there's a sun oh but there's some light even before the sun has risen over the horizon so we should be having a gradual dawning of actual happiness and freedom in our relationships We should be becoming more and more aware that we are personal, that everyone is personal, and at the same time having complete freedom. Not that freedom means impersonalism and uncaring and coldness. And then we can't be a person. And not that being a person means that I have to look for other jivas to fulfill my needs and my happiness is dependent on how other jivas treat me. It's quite interesting, in fact, that uh, many great devotees find that they're totally happy with being mistreated by others. They don't care if they have on a material platform the so-called opulence of the so-called goddess of fortune. They may even relish not having those things. Great devotees sometimes even relish Uh, traveling like a deaf, dumb, and blind person that other people are defaming and insulting. Because the devotee is getting connection with real goddess of fortune at the side of the Lord and is experiencing the genuine form of all of these opulences within in such a way that no one can take them away. Now, just like in a government-run school, a government-financed school, the teachers and the principal, they should be, generally they are, concerned about the happiness of the students and the parents. It's not that they don't care, generally speaking. In fact, many times they care a lot. Many times they're in their profession 
because they care. But yet they know the government's paying my salary. Somebody who's in that position, they're not psychologically or practically dependent on the reciprocation from the students or the parents, etc., in order to feel satisfied in their work. They're satisfied in their work if they're actually pleasing the one who's maintaining them. So that is the key to Krishna consciousness. So in order to have this connection with Krishna, we meditate upon these qualities of Krishna. As Krishna nicely explains in the Bhagavad Gita, if we meditate on how Krishna is like that, if we understand how Krishna is like that, then we can also awaken how we are like that. How Krishna is personal, he's loving, he's kind, he's giving, he's reciprocating. As Kapiladev says, he appears in whatever form the devotee desires. He's the perfect everything, the perfect father, the perfect husband, the perfect son, the perfect lover, the perfect master. And yet he's free. In fact, it is his freedom that allows him to be the perfect person. He's completely independent. He has nothing to do. He has nothing to accomplish. He's not having a relationship with the jivas because he has some agenda but just simply for love and for enjoyment and for fun and for sharing. That he's overflowing with love and bliss that he wants to share. Exactly like that. So, as said in the verse here, consequently, no one can speak of him adequately. Such a person who is unlimited, who has fully his own opulences, who is independent, who has no need to depend on anyone else, and yet eternally manifests an unlimited, basically, number of living entities with whom he has a personal, loving, caring relationship. How can we speak of him adequately? Yet, yet to shanticha, ramanticha. Any speaking we do of him is our satisfaction and brings us to our satisfaction in all areas of life. Let us therefore speak and think of him and connect with him uh, as close to 24 hours a day as we can manage. So questions, comments? Now, of course, you're bringing up the point that how is it going to be possible 
somebody to do service, uh, you know, he doesn't have his own means of livelihood, you know, separately. This is a controversial point that's come up quite a bit, and uh, uh, you're bringing in some interesting points with this uh, class. Uh, how to balance, how to really understand this maturely. So the idea is that the brahmanas, brahminical service, is to be offered without asking any particular price or any particular maintenance. And on the other side, the maintenance is supposed to be freely given. So Srila Prabhupada arranged centers where disciples could live and be maintained. Now, of course, the disciples who lived there were contributing to how they were being maintained. They were going out and selling books or selling incense. I mean, just like even in the Christian monasteries and converts, they generally have some sort of, you could say, semi-business. They may, you know, make their own jam from their orchards and sell it or things like that. Or Prophet explains how previously the temples and monasteries served as the hotels and restaurants for the society. And people would give some donation. And also the government is supposed to give some donation. So as far as brahminical service, that's supposed to be maintained by the tax money. And it's supposed to also, people are supposed to give something. Bhagavad Gita says that sacrifice without remuneration to the priests is in the mode of ignorance. And when Kamsa wanted to destroy the demigods... So specifically it says in the Bhagavatam that one way to destroy the demigods and to destroy is to get at the root of Vishnu because the demigods are dependent on Vishnu and one of the items mentioned at the root of Vishnu is sacrifice with remuneration. So a Brahmin should do work without expecting any remuneration. Right now we're just talking about Brahmanas. A Brahmana should do work for the society without expecting anything in return. Without, you know, saying, well, I'm only going to work if I get paid. That's the idea of a Brahman. The Brahmana gives and depends on Krishna. Krishna is going to maintain me. That's the mood of a Brahmana. Now, by the way, that's specifically the mood of a renounced Brahmana, a Brahmana in the, in the Brahmachari Vanaprastha or Sannyas Ashram where the person doesn't have any kind of responsibility for anybody else. If you're only responsible for yourself, you can say, you know, I'm just going to give without concern as to who's going to uh, remunerate me, who's going to take care of me, and Krishna's going to take care of me. And that, But in order for even the renunciates to do that, you have to have a society where people are trained to take care of them. You have to have a society where people are trained that if there's a renunciate, who's giving all of their time uh, to service, that it's our duty to maintain them. And then such a person, if, if one of the indications that such a person actually is a renounced Brahmana, is that they're willing to live on whatever they get in that way. And that's quite different than a salary. A salary, you know, I'm going to get at this time, I'm going to get this amount of money. Whereas living on donations is very different. You know, you don't know exactly, you know, what you're going to get from whom. Of course, it's, it's interesting in the Shastras we find that the Brahmanas would specifically go to events where they knew the charity was going to be distributed. 
they would go to birthdays and, and weddings and swaimvars and you know and I, I'm assuming that that was true not only for the renunciates but also for the Brahmin householders who lived strictly on charity like that. Now Prabhupada talks about how that uh, the Brahminas would uh, come to your home and they could offer you medical care, they could offer you astrological guidance, and they could do that without charging any particular fee because people in general were giving them donations and the government was giving them donations through the tax money. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting also that there's injunctions for Brahminas householders who live strictly on charity. And because there's specific injunctions like that, like if you're a Brahmin householder who lives strictly on charity, you're not supposed to keep a stock of things. So when I read that, I, I wonder, does that mean that there are Brahminas who don't live strictly on charity? Or what exactly does that mean? What are the differentiations for Brahminas? Now, for Kshatriyas, Vaishyas, and Sudras, they have their means of livelihood. So the Kshatriyas are gaining money through rent or through taxes. They're, that's probably said they're landlords or they're government officials. And they're providing then service for the citizens. So to get money through rent and through taxes, again, it's not exactly like getting a salary. Now that's supposed to be their service to Krishna. They're supposed to run the country or run the apartment or whatever to please Krishna. And then such people, they have their independent source of income and they can also offer some uh, service without any kind of remuneration. In fact, such people should not be receiving charity. If you're a Vaisha, then you're maintaining yourself by generating wealth. If you're a Sudra, you're maintaining yourself uh, through your skills and your crafts. So in all of those cases, if you're doing Shudra work, Vaishya work, or Ksatriya work, you're not supposed to accept charity. And if you have time in addition to your regular work, then you're supposed to be using that, at least to some extent, in some sort of direct devotional service where you don't get any kind of charity from it because you do have an independent source of income. But everybody has to have a source of income. Your Varna is your source of income. That's what it's referring to. It's referring to your livelihood. But if you want, what I'm understanding is if you're claiming to be a Brahmana, then you don't ask for maintenance. You there? You know, if you're doing Brahminical work, you don't come in saying, I'm going to do this Brahminical work if I'm maintained. At the same time, that can't that attitude really can't exist very well in a society that's not trained to maintain brahmanas. So you, you have to have both of them together. I mean, it, 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 a very simple example is uh, when I was recently at the Govardhan retreat, which I've been to several times. So they charge a fee for attending. They charge 160 euros, which is a, a decent chunk of money. Now they have to charge money because they have to rent a place. You know, they rent uh, the majority or sometimes all of, a, of an ashram or sometimes they rent like part of one ashram, part of another ashram. And then they have to hire people to come in and do the cleaning and 
heat up the water in the morning and so you know they have to hire some of the local people and they have to pay the rent for the ashram and they have to pay for the buses and stuff like that so I had always been assuming that some of the money we gave to attend the retreat was given to the speakers but this time when I went I inquired of the organizers I said are the people who are coming and giving the presentations are they getting any of this money that we pay and they said no so at the end of the retreat, I was asked to give a little speech. So I was talking about how much I appreciated the retreat. And then I said, uh, you know, sacrifice without remuneration to the priest is in the mode of ignorance. And therefore, it's incumbent upon everybody. You know, we should all try to give something to each of the, the people who are the, the heart of the program. So that, that mentality has to be there. You know, if, if we think that somebody can do full-time Brahminical work without being maintained by the society, it's just, it's not possible. But the Brahmana has a mentality of not asking for anything and not giving dependent on whether or not they get it. Now, there might be some exceptions to that. Just like there are certain instances where Srila Prabhupada would only do preaching programs if the people inviting him would pay something. So we will find some circumstances where Prabhupada was asked to give a lecture, give a presentation, and he'll say, we'll only go if they'll pay. Or like sometimes Srila Prabhupada would say that we shouldn't give out the books for free, that we should charge for them. So there may be some instances where even a renunciate and even a brahmana can understand that if people are not asked to give something up front, that they're not really going to be receptive, they're not really going to be interested. So there may be some instances like that. I mean, where you may have to say to somebody, um, you know, I've given you for free in the past and you haven't done anything with it and therefore if you want to ask something from me now, you have to be willing to pay something for it. So that, that may also be there. But that's not because the Brahmana giving is contingent on their receiving something. It's not, they're not really thinking about themselves. They're not thinking, well, I'm doing this only because I'm going to get something out of it. But they're thinking that for the good of the receiver, they have to also be giving something or else they're not going to be receptive uh, or else they're, you know, they're going to be influenced by this mode of ignorance of just wanting to take something without giving something back. Uh, so that may be there. I mean, I have uh, one very good friend who works in one of our government-sponsored devotional schools outside of America and also is often asked to do yagyas and samskaras for the congregation. And that congregation, being primarily Indian, has the culture that you have to give remunerations to the priests, that you can't do some kind of a yagya or a samskara and then just say, although the Indians are losing this culture as they become more and more westernized, and just say, you know, well, you're coming and doing it for free. So he collects sometimes, you know, quite a bit of money from doing that, but he has a principle that any money he collects from doing that, because he's also getting money from the government for his other work, that he doesn't use for himself. That he takes that money and he uses it for something else. So I could see, you know, if if one had the understanding that if such and such college is inviting me to speak that they need to give me some kind of honorarium and one might then choose I'm not saying one would have to but might one might then choose that some that any money that you asked for you didn't use for yourself 
that you only use things for your own maintenance if people gave it without your asking and that if you had to ask for money for the benefit of the other party that you then use that money for something other than your own personal needs so as to prevent your ever getting in the mentality of I'm doing this service for the purpose of being maintained. So that's a very long answer. I'm sure we could talk about it more, and I, I hope that was helpful. I, I mean, I have to say that that was very deep, uh, elaborate explanation. I really appreciate it because, you know, for me, I have a real tendency to put things in terms of black and white, you know, either this way or that way, but that's a very broad, uh, much more mature understanding. Um, Thank you very much for that. Well, really well, you want to know something really funny. I, I just want to say something really funny. So there was this devotee many years ago. Actually, uh, you might have been there, Ramananda Prabhu, because it was where uh, a temple where both you and I used to reside. Anyway, this, this devotee, uh, I remember one of the classes he gave, he said, I know I'm a Brahmana because I've never done any physical work in my life. <laughs> so I thought that was really funny. And then he also said that people who offer their service to the temple and to the movement without getting any kind of facility or reciprocation are higher than those who get something. And I, I said, well, if that's going to be your way of thinking, then householders who have a job and give an hour of service to the temple without getting anything in an exchange are in a better position than renunciates who live in the ashram and are fully maintained. And I said, that is obviously an illogical conclusion. Mm-hmm. Not that the householders are lower, but that would if you have that sort of mentality, then nobody should ever live in an ashram and be maintained, and no one should ever get any charity, and everyone should have some outside source of income and just have a little bit of time every week to give without any kind of reciprocation and you would be cutting out then the uh, the head of society. Anyway, just a little side point. Uh, go ahead, we can hear you. You can go ahead and unmute yourself. Yeah, uh, you no, know, I just wanted to add a little thing to that instance that you brought up um, that specifically uh, with your question about this uh, why Prabhupada was uh, didn't like because also at the same time uh, you didn't add that Prabhupada actually said that it's not good to ask money from the Guru because that devotee was asking directly from Prabhupada for translation. So that was just a different instance, I guess. Yes, that's also a very important point. You know, the guru maintains the disciple. You know, in the traditional brahmachari ashram, the brahmacharis who are all, you know, children or young teenagers, they're going out and begging, and they give 100% of what they beg to the guru, but then the guru maintains them. It's not that they give 100% to the guru, and the guru, you know, is eating gulabjamins and pakoras, and the brahmacharis students are starving to death. You know, it's not a Nazi concentration camp. It's, 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 not, it's not that if you're really spiritual, you're in, you know, a Siberian or Nazi labor camp where the leaders are eating nicely and the workers are, are starving. So, but but the, the brahmachari has the mood 
that I give everything to the guru and whatever the guru wants to give me, that's what I'm accepting and I don't ask anything more. In fact, the brahmachari is supposed to only eat when they're called. So even if prasadam is served, they have to be individually called to come and eat before they eat. So that's why I'm saying it has to be both sides. That the the person in the renounced ashram or the grahasta brahmana who's living on charity, they don't ask for anything. And on the other side, they give. So the guru naturally gives to the disciples. Yeah, the society naturally gives to the renunciates. And it also, of course, I mean, we should also make the point that if you're really a renunciate, if you get more than what you need, you distribute it. Because if you're really a renunciate, then you're not going around collecting charities so you can build a mansion and eat glubjimans all the time. That's not the idea. You know, it used to be, until very recently, that the main way of distributing charity in society was through the churches and temples. Just like in Tirupati, people give an incredible amount of money to, to Balaji, which is run by the TTD, and I don't know, you know how corrupt or incorrupt the TTD is, but they're, what, what they appear to do, at least, is that they then use that money to make sure that the whole society is run properly. They're the distributors of charity. They make sure, and in fact, Tirupati and, and Tirumala are very clean, well-run places, as by Indian standards at least, so that you know there's no begging. Begging is not allowed in Tirumala, and they use the money that's given to the deity to make sure that people are taken care of. So this was, of course, the job of the Kshatriyas through the tax money, but it's also the job of the Brahmanas. The Brahmanas collect uh, charity, and they also give in charity. They're supposed to give their excess. Although Prabhupada's interesting is in one purple where Prabhupada said that the, the Brahmanas, especially the householder Brahmanas, were not literally poor because the Kshatriyas would give them villages and cows and gold. and So they had, uh, in a, by giving them villages, in other words, that the tax money from a particular village would go to support a Brahmana. That's what it means by giving them a village. The Kshatriyas would still rule that village but they would turn over, you know, all or some of the tax money from a particular village to a brahmana. So the brahmana could be automatically and nicely maintained. But the, but yeah, the mood is you don't go to your guru and say, hey, you got to give me something. That, that ruins the whole mood of the relationship. The same thing if a brahmana says, well, I'll only teach if I get a particular salary. You know, then then you're a shudra instead of a brahmana. Then you're, you're really in the wrong mood. Unfortunately, at the present time, if you're a householder and you don't ask for such things, people won't give you anything. You know, that's the unfortunate situation. If, if you're running a school in America where you can't get tax money for a devotional school and you don't charge tuition to the parents, you can't run a school. It, it just won't exist anymore, you know. And, and thinking that you, and it's then the parents won't give you anything if you don't demand it. They just won't. They're not trained in that mentality. You know, maybe they'll give you a sari or something. You know, they'll they'll give you a bag of rice, and then you know you're supposed to go to the bank and pay the mortgage on your school building with a bag of basmati rice. You know, it's not going to work very well. So this is. This is a real problem. That In order to have something, you have to have all the pieces of it. You can't institute 
one part of the culture without instituting the other part of the culture. It, it, it's, a, it's a full picture. Uh, but I like what you're saying, particularly about the guru. Okay, I think we should end here. Thank you very much. All glories to Srila Prabhupada.